Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Welcome to Potions Lesson. <laughs> so this is the unfortunate uh, Frau von Trapp, who I've... Um, she's got a nasty case of uh, MRSA. Uh, what's this one? This is uh, gastric ulcers. She's got a urinary tract infection and uh, inhalation anthrax. So things aren't going too well in the hillsides. Um, so I thought I'd start on a nice cheery note. Um, in July 2014, the government commissioned a review in collaboration with the Wellcome Trust into the uh, rise of antimicrobial resistance, what it means in terms of public health and, and in, in terms of economics. Um, the review was uh, to be carried out by an economist called uh, Jim O'Neill, so known as the Neill Review. Um, the website is here. Um, if you're interested in going have a look, what it says, uh, the, there's been a number of interim reports. Um, the final report is due this summer. But if you go to the website, then the first thing you will notice is this quote from David Cameron. If we fail to act, we are looking at an almost unthinkable scenario where antibiotics no longer work and we're cast back into the dark ages of medicine. Quite a claim to make. And I'll just be spending the first half of this lecture um, really uh, reflecting on this, reflecting on what the dark ages of medicine really were, reflecting on whether we're really likely to go back to those times um, and really uh, what is this burden, what is all the fuss all about? Are we, is it justified to be really scared or is this a little bit of hype? So the first thing... I want to point out, I want to get something off my chest, really. Um, sometimes I call myself a microbiologist, uh, but I don't really like to, because frankly, microbiology as a discipline is a bit embarrassing. It's, it's very anachronistic. It's the old, only scientific discipline, uh, I would say, that's defined on a completely uh, arbitrary criterion, and that the, the subject matter, the organisms that fall under the remit of microbiology, the only thing they have in common is that they're small. Okay. They're not in any way related, and they're not even similar size. They're not even the same amount of smallness. Um, there are <laughs> protozoa, which are things that cause things like uh, malaria, sleeping sickness. These are, uh, if you like, proper uh, organisms. Eukaryotes have a nucleus. There's bacteria, which I'll be focusing on, uh, which causes disease like tuberculosis, cholera, and meningitis. And then there are viruses, and I'm not really sure what they are. They're not even proper living organisms, but they ca cause HIV, Ebola, and flu. So you can see there's easily two orders of magnitude uh, size difference between the protozoa and the viruses. So they're really very, very different things. And I shall be talking about bacteria mostly. And I just want to emphasize that bacteria and viruses are different. And if you ever see in any newspaper article any reference to the E. coli virus, I expect you to write a very sternly worded letter to the editor. So one of the uh, uh, sort of common wisdoms that seeped into the, the public imagination, and I think it's actually quite a good uh, uh, analogy, it has a lot of uh, 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 sense to it, is this uh, contrast between what we tend to call the good bacteria, uh, which is an idea uh, which has been sort of made popular mostly by Danone and their probiotic yogurts, and the bad bacteria. So if I'm dealing with the question, how do we deal with a problem like bacteria, it's only fair to start off by saying that not all bacteria are a problem. In fact, some bacteria are very good for us. 
Uh, the examples I've used here, uh, 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 the yogurt, the Danone, the bacteria, the good bacteria, is called Lactobacillus casei. And uh, the example of the bad bacteria is uh, a bug called Borrelia burgdorferi, which causes Lyme disease, this very characteristic bullseye rash. And I just uh, like to use this. I won't be mentioning this disease again in this talk, but just as a sort of public awareness campaign, we do have quite a lot of this uh, bacteria in Bath. So if you get bitten by a tick, look out for this characteristic bullseye rash. Um, so you may have also heard it said that uh, uh, bacteria obviously live on us and live in us. Um, there's a, a, a common... Uh, fact that goes around, that I've used it myself in, in lectures last semester, um, that uh, there are about 10 times as many bacterial cells on you and in you as there are human cells. Uh, there's a paper, uh, courtesy of my PhD student Harry, who sent me this, um, paper just out last month or so. Actually, that's not quite true. The numbers are about the same, about 3 times 10 to the 13. So we're made up with just as much bacteria as we are humans. In fact, the authors of this uh, uh, paper delicately put it that the numbers are similar enough that each defecation event may flip the ratio to favour human cells over bacteria. Which is quite impressive. So, colonise all sorts of different body sites, gut, skin, oral cavity, urinogenital tracts, and there's uh, a particular uh, a community of good bacteria which uh, have been well characterised, which colonise the vagina, um, and these uh, vaginas obviously quite a, a vulnerable body sites, so these create a low pH environment which is protective against other pathogens. And it turns out that the lactobacillus casei, which is made in your, put into your yogurt, was actually originally isolated from a vagina. Uh, the microbiome plays a protective role in many diseases. Okay, so they really are good bacteria. So if you disturb this community of bacteria, this can lead to all sort manner of problems, obesity. You can feed fat mice uh, the bacteria or implant the bacteria from the guts of fat mice into lean mice and you can make them fat. Um, that has all sorts of roles in diabetes, in eczema, in irritable bowel syndrome. The gut microbial flora is a very interesting line of research which is really just uh, getting going which is this uh, link between the uh, gut microbiome and our mood, uh, our cognition, uh, uh, our, our perception of pain. Um, so we all know that the gut tends to be a sort of uh, a, a seat of our feelings. We talk about gut feelings. Um, and it's, uh, there is good sort of physiological uh, reasons for this. There's a very uh, intimate association between the gut and the brain. There's a vagus nerve which goes between the two. There's the gut-brain axis. So our moods uh, and our perception are very much influenced by what's going on in our gut. Um, it's curious then, given that, that um, uh, the heart is chosen as, this, as the organ of, of love and emotion, but I guess thinking about it, Valentine's Day wouldn't be quite the same if we were all sending our loved ones cars with pictures of colons on the front. <laughs> There's also, while well, I'm on the subject of good bacteria, a surprising amount of maternal provision. You inherit an awful lot of bacteria from your mother uh, at birth, immediately after birth, but even, it turns out, before birth. Uh, there was a dogma until recently that human beings are born sterile. That turns out not to be the case, um, and all you need to do is, is have a look good dig around in the meconium to see, to find these bacteria which are maternally provisioned, probably through the placenta, even before birth. 
If you don't know what the meconium is, um, uh, you haven't had children. <laughs> it's, it's every new father's proudest moment. It's the first little poo that comes out. Um, again, while we're on the subject of the good bacteria, uh, we have this, again, this really captured the public imagination, this idea which is formally stated as the hygiene hypothesis. And this states that we can be too clean, we can be too sterile, and this can actually be bad for us. The hygiene hypothesis, hypothesis formally states that it's the lack of early childhood exposure to uh, some symbiotic micro, microorganisms and some parasites, um, which will increase our susceptibility to, to certain inflammatory diseases later on, uh, because the development of the immune system really depends upon exposure to these organisms. So the classic examples are asthma and eczema, but it's also been implicated in type 1 diabetes, cancer, multiple sclerosis, and even depression and autism. Now, there's a bit of a common mis misconception about the hy hygiene hypothesis. It's really uh, uh, talking about um, bacteria which we've co-evolved with over a long uh, a long evolutionary period. It's the good, good friends, the old good friends hypothesis is also called. Um, and that our modern living, living in uh, urban living, uh, uh, our, our change of diet, um, the use of antibiotics can all prevent exposure to microbes that we've co-evolved with for a very long uh, period of time. Um, it doesn't state that eating dirt or catching colds is good for you. And you can take this idea a little bit too fast, far. And a reasonable level, level of cleanliness and hygiene isn't going to increase the risk of, of inflammatory diseases, um, but it will decrease the risk of getting a nasty infection. So again, the distinction between good and bad bacteria is sometimes a bit blurry. Um, Staphylococcusaurus, as David mentioned, is my favorite pet. Uh, the, the, the resistant variant of this species um, is the MRSA. MR stands for methicillin resistant Staphylococcusaurus. So this is a bug which normally is talked about in terms of its, uh, the diseases that it causes. But in fact, it spends almost all of its time living completely blamelessly up our nostrils. About a third of us in this room carry this bacteria up our noses without it doing any harm at all. Neisseria meningitis, as the name suggests, causes uh, uh, meningococcal meningitis, also can colonize quite blamelessly the nasopharynx. Sometimes it's the disturbance of the other bacteria uh, around a, a bug which will flip it over from being good or, or neutral to being a very dangerous uh, pathogen. A classic example of this is uh, Clostridium difficile, which you may have heard of as uh, C. diff. Uh, this is a bug which uh, can uh, reside quite blamelessly in our, in our bellies. It has the ability to sporulate. It can stay there for a long time without causing any problems whatsoever. Uh, however, the administration of antibiotics uh, can lead to the overgrowth of this bacteria because it's innately resistant to antibiotics. And this causes a lot more deaths in our hospitals than MRSA ever has. It caused about 20,000 deaths in England and Wales, directly caused deaths uh, between 1999 and 2012, and probably contributed towards another 20,000 or so. The good news is there's a new treatment on the horizon called fecal microbiota transplantation. And this is based on the old adage that one man's poop is another man's soup. And essentially, uh, it's based around the premise that all you need to do is replace these disturbed 
gut microbiota by the microbiome from a healthy person. And it works remarkably well. They're all screened for taking all the nasties out. You take all the pathogens out. Um, and it's proved to be pretty safe. And randomized uh, controlled trials have been remarkably successful, in some cases so successful that they stopped the trials halfway through because it's been deemed unethical to keep the control group going that weren't getting the treatment. Um, so ongoing use of this research is, is actually being used for all manner of different diseases. Again, uh, uh, obesity, diabetes, Crohn's disease, MS, and even Parkinson's disease. I'm going to be drawing quite heavily on the BBC website during this <laughs> lecture. And this, <laughs> this is my favourite. This came out, uh, this was uh, 7th of February 2015. So this just goes to show that uh, sometimes we, we don't really understand exactly what we're playing with when we're messing around with a gut microbiome like this. And it can have quite unpredictable consequences. And this was a case of a woman who has a successful treatment with uh, 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 FMT, but she went on to put on a load of weight, 16 kilograms. Um, and you read the, uh, the text here, it says, uh, a UK expert said the link between gut bugs and obesity was still unclear. Uh, a fecal microbiota transport also referred to by some as a transpusion, um, <laughs> is like an extreme example of a probiotic yogurt. <laughs> Pretty extreme. <laughs> so what about the really bad bacteria? So I just highlighted the really two, the two worst bacterial killers, um, uh, contemporary killers at the moment. Uh, the big one is, is uh, tuberculosis. It's still very much with us uh, in the uh, developing world. 2014, uh, almost 10 million people contracted TB, and uh, one and a half million died. Amazingly, a third of the world's population is infected with this bacterium. So you can have a latent infection without it causing any disease whatsoever, and a third of us have got in, in the world have got this, this bug in us. Uh, the World Health Authority declared TB a global health emergency in 1993, but the problem's really not gone away. It's getting worse, and of course it's linked with, with uh, HIV as well in Africa. The other big killer is streptococcus pneumoniae, which causes uh, pneumococcal disease, which kills roughly the same uh, number of people, 1.6 million deaths annually. It tends to kill uh, uh, very young uh, infants and very old people. Quite often when people die of old age, it's this bug which uh, will finally uh, uh, um, knock them off, which accounts for the very high, partially accounts for the very high death rate. So let's return to this question of what have the trends been since the dark ages of medicine and how do antibiotics and antibiotic resistance fit into the big picture? Well, here is a really quite interesting infographic of the global causes of death throughout the 20th century. On the uh, left-hand side here, you can see all the non-communicable diseases, most of which are cardiovascular diseases. So those are non-infectious. Non we have cancer as a separate uh, uh, balloon here. Um, in the middle, we have what's called humanity, which are all the deaths down to war, accidents, drugs, uh, and so on. Um, and here we have the infectious diseases. So you can see immediately the infectious diseases, you know, it's a significant uh, proportion of all deaths in the 20th century. Let's just have a look at a few more, uh, uh, pick out a few examples. A really shocking one here is uh, uh, suicide. 89 million people killed themselves in the 20th century compared to 131 million who died in all wars. 100 million who died through uh, tobacco use. Um, honorary mention to smallpox, 400 million. A real scourge of humanity, which would, 
we shouldn't forget about when we're talking about the dark ages of medicine. 1980 was the last case. It's gone. It's eradicated, thanks to the vaccine. Whooping cough, another big one. Tuberculosis, uh, 100 million people died of tuberculosis. So, of course, this is over the 20th century altogether. Let's look at, uh, at the trends, in the, at least in the developed world, in this case the US, of death rates as that century uh, uh, progressed. And you can see here an obvious decline, an obvious effect from 1900s all the way up to 2000. There's a fairly consistent decline. Um, can anyone uh, care to guess what this peak's all about? If you look at the years. Spanish flu. Spanish flu. My God, Spanish flu. Uh, let's have a look. Zoom in on the actual... Oops. This is... The death rates due to different infectious diseases, again in the States. Um, the brown line is uh, 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 influenza and pneumonia, which includes the Spanish flu. Um, the blue line here is tuberculosis. So you can see a constant decline. But this spike, um, Spanish flu killed 40 million people. Many, many more than, uh, it happened just after the First World War. Many, many people than, more than, than died in the war. In the United States alone, it killed at least half a million uh, um, people. Um, really, really uh, uh, quite shocking outbreak. And what's unusual about it, we still don't quite understand it, but um, it, unlike sort of normal seasonal flu, it tended to kill uh, younger adults. So normal seasonal flu tends to uh, uh, knock out the elderly or, or at-risk uh, individuals. Um, uh, Spanish flu knock people off in their prime. But nevertheless, the, overall, the overriding uh, happy picture is this decline in death rates due to TB and down here is diphtheria. Um, oops. Diphtheria, this is the, the, the instance rates for diphtheria in England and Wales over the 20th century. Now, I must admit, I don't know anything about diphtheria. I've never read a paper on it. I've never met anybody who works on it. I've never heard any presentations about it. It's just not a thing. And the reason it's not a thing is because we've all been um, uh, immunised against it. Very, very successful vaccination campaign in the 40s. But you can see, even, our, even before this vaccination campaign, it was... Uh, it's really on its way down. Okay, so essentially, I'm massively oversimplifying here, but essentially if you're thinking about the 20th century as a whole, you can split it into three distinct eras. During the first 40 years of the century, there was this massive decrease in, in mortality due to infectious disease across the board, in the, at least in the developing na developed nations. And this was due to increased sanitation, building of the sewers, Better diet is a huge factor, clean water. And this tended to particularly uh, uh, ameliorate the problems with, with uh, uh, infant deaths. Okay? So if you were young, you stood a much better chance of survival as, as the century went on. In the mid part of the century, 1940 to 1960, the antibiotics started to come online. The vaccination programme started to come online. So we had these clinical interve interventions which made a massive difference again to infectious disease. And they're really roughly equally spread in this case between the, uh, uh, the, the young, the middle-aged and the elderly. During the latter part of the, the century, uh, the decreases in infectious disease were still there, but it plateaued out a little bit because a lot of them were just more or less gone, almost gone. Um, but there, there was a continued decrease in death rates thanks to advances in cardiovascular, treating cardiovascular disease, for example, and this tended to, to help out the elderly. So if you were born in about 1910, you benefited from all, all three of these different eras. So this, again, BBC website, 
Last week, over 65s in England living longer than ever before, but this was the BBC website yesterday. So, <laughs> so you can take your pick, really. <laughs> yeah, glass half full, glass half empty. Okay, let's turn to uh, uh, look a bit more closely at the question of, of resistance. So, as everybody knows, penicillin was discovered by a Frenchman um, by the name of Ernst Duchesne. He uh, noticed the uh, antimicrobial uh, effect of penicillin moulds. Um, he was a, a young, bright guy in the army. He wrote up a thesis, sent it to the uh, Pasteur Institute in Paris, didn't even get a receipt back from the, from the Pasteur Institute. Unfortunately for him, unfortunately for France, unfortunately for the world, his work was ignored. Uh, he died of tuberculosis at the age of 37. 1928, you've all heard of Alexander Fleming working at, uh, in the St Mary's Hospital uh, in London, rediscovered it, went on holiday, left his plates to go mouldy, came back and noticed this amazing uh, antibacterial property of the moulds that were growing there, um, recognised it, uh, quite rightly won the Nobel Prize for this discovery. Um, the hard, a lot of the hard work was done by American biochemists uh, Florian Chain, who actually extracted the penicillin and made it into a form, could produce it in, in, in sufficient quantities to actually make it useful to treat disease. And of course, the, the motivation for that was, was Pearl Harbor um, and uh, uh, America coming into the war. And it prevented absolutely hundreds of thousands of deaths from wound infections during World War II. Now, scary slide. Um, as uh, Fleming predicted, uh, the, it wasn't long before resistance to penicillin uh, uh, was first reported, first uh, deployed in 1943, resistance first observed in 1946. And if you go through these other major antibiotic uh, classes, you can see that it's generally not very long at all, the gap between the year that they're first uh, uh, deployed and resistance is first described. The other one I've highlighted here is methicillin, which is the M in MRSA, which is the same class of antibiotic as penicillin, the beta-lactams, and that similarly only took a year before uh, uh, methicillin resistance, MRSA, uh, uh, came along. If we look uh, at modern day, what is the, how much does this matter? Um, well, we can think about it in terms of, of an economic burden. We can think about it in terms of a public health burden. Uh, more up-to-date, I have looked quite hard, more up-to-date statistics are quite hard to come by. Um, so these are going back to 2007. Uh, but I found one paper that uh, estimated that across the EU, uh, infections uh, due to resistant bacteria result in about 2.5 million extra hospital days with a cost of about 1.5 billion euros a year. In the US, uh, the costs are about twenty to $30,000 per patient if they happen to get, uh, unfortunate enough to get uh, infected by a, a resistant bug rather than the sensitive one. If you want to know, okay, what are the, what's the added risk if you get to hospital and you get infected by an MRSA compared to an MSSA, which is the methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, well, this is really hard to, to, to gauge. It depends a lot on the different studies. It depends a lot on the, your state of your health. It depends a lot on the, the state of the hospital. But there's one study which raised the death rates from about 11.5% of sensitive to about 23.6% for MRSA. Um, there's another study which focused on this other bug, which you may not have heard of, the CRKP, which is the carbapenem-resistant Klebsiella pneumoniae, which are the, really the ones that at the moment are, are the 
gravest cause for concern on the basis that they're really, really spreading very, very rapidly. And you can see there's quite a marked uh, increase of risk if you get infected by the resistant sort compared to the sensitive sort. So why does resistance evolve and spread so quickly? So many of the answers of uh, 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 suggestions have been discussed over and over. We probably know about the overuse of antibiotics, the use of prescription of, uh, prescription of antibiotics for viral diseases where they're not going to have any effect, the use of antibiotics for uh, agriculture. About half of antibiotics aren't used for medical purposes at all. They're used to, for, for, uh, in agriculture. Um, the global movement of people, so we can say we've got much better sanitation than we did at the start of the 19th century, but the, other, the flip side to that is that people are moving around a lot more than they've ever done in history, um, which of course uh, increases the risk of, of pandemics. We don't always have poor hygiene in, in uh, many developing nations. Uh, the sanitation really isn't uh, up to scratch. We have environmental pollution, by which I mean antibiotics themselves entering the environment through the, uh, primarily through the manufacturing process. So antibiotics are manufactured in China and India, and they're very leaky processes. There's rivers just full of antibiotics, which of course can encourage antibiotic resistance in the environment. And because we're all joined up one world, what happens in China and India is something that we should be worried about. Um, Inadequate surveillance and monitoring, this is where we really come in. Um, it's really not clear exactly the scale of the problem, uh, how these bugs are moving around, what are the major transmission routes, say, from the environment, uh, from the rivers, uh, from the soil, back into the, the hospitals, or from the hospitals back into the environment. These, uh, are, we're really, really um, not sure exactly how the dynamics of this works at the moment. We can also address this question from the point of view of, uh, uh, of the bacteria, and it, uh, uh, it seems likely, given the speed with which um, antibiotic resistance develops, that in fact there was some antibiotic resistant bacteria in any given population present even before the antibiotic was first used. Um, so what this means, of course, is that natural selection can wipe out all the resensitive uh, variants in the population very, very quickly, that whole population is going to change from being uh, 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 sensitive to, to resistant. There are a couple of really great papers which support this view. Um, one was uh, from uh, uh, Nick Thompson and colleagues in the Sanger Centre, and what they did uh, to mark the anniversary, the 100 years of World War I, they went back to the culture collections and they took out the very first bacterial culture that was frozen down and stored in the collection, strain number one, um, which was a, a, a Shigella bacterium from, taken from a, a, a soldier in the First World War, a private cable who contracted uh, Shigella and died of, of, of dysentery. They froze uh, or dried rather his, his uh, bacteria down and they managed to reanimate it a couple of years ago, sequence the whole genome. And it turns out this was taken in 1915, a long time before penicillin was used, but this strain was actually resistant to penicillin and another antibiotic, erythromycin. Even more striking piece of work, work done in Alaska, looking at the uh, permafrost ice cores. You know, you can dig down into these, these permafrosts, and the deeper down you go, the further back in time you go. Um, there was a study looking at 30,000-year-old ice core samples um, they managed to amplify and sequence or, uh, uh, genes which were near, near pretty much 
identical to contemporary resistance genes. So antibiotic resistance isn't a new phenomenon. Antibiotic resistance is ancient. Okay? And that's not surprising when you consider that antibiotics are, of course, natural uh, compounds. They're made by bacteria. They're made by uh, uh, fungi. Um, they're modified for use in the clinic, but they're based on natural, uh, usually based on natural uh, compounds. So for every antibiotic, there's already resistance genes out there because, uh, the, well, apart from anything else, the bug that's producing the antibiotics doesn't want to kill itself. Um, so there are these resistances, ancient thing. And um, the other interesting trick that bacteria have up their sleeves is once the genes are out there, those genes won't necessarily stay in the bug in which those genes have evolved. Bacteria have this amazing ability to swap genes around by a process called recombination. Um, so one bug can pick up a resistance gene from a completely different bug uh, 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 out there in the environment. So this process of recombination uh, has been well studied. It's what I've spent quite a lot of my uh, research career looking at. Um, it's quite a mysterious, quite a complicated, quite a confusing muddling process. It, it arises by a whole a range of different mechanisms. Um, it has some parallels to, to sex in eukaryotes, in, in humans and other uh, eukaryotic organisms, in that it's the con one consequence is that it increases genetic diversity in the population. It allows for much more rapid adaptation. Because sex is just, of course, the bringing together of genetic material from two different uh, individuals into a single individual. So uh, just to uh, a cartoon illustrating recombination, if we have a bluey lineage and a pinky lineage, here the blue lineage is picking up little bits of DNA from the pink lineage donating little bits of DNA back to the pinky lineage, or maybe the pinky lineage is picking up uh, 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 DNA from a completely unrelated uh, uh, lineage, the yellow one. How does this happen? It happens, as I mentioned, by a number of different mechanisms. These are the textbook examples. Um, conjugation, where plasmids, which themselves can carry uh, resistance genes very commonly, um, the cell-to-cell the cell contact made by these pili, the cells are pulled together and DNA can transfer from one cell to another. Transduction is another important mechanism for recombination. These, uh, these little yellow blobs on the bacteria look like little lunar landers. These are actually viruses which uh, pump their DNA into the bacteria. They can then lyse the bacteria, so it pops and all the DNA and the new viruses come out and then they go off to infect new bacteria, they can actually act as very efficient vehicles for moving DNA from one bacterial cell to another. And then we have a process called transformation where bacteria just, uh, uh, there's no um, other vector involved. They, they basically uh, suck up free DNA from the environment and incorporate it into their genome. So this brings us, that's my extended uh, preamble. <laughs> this brings us up to 1992, <laughs> where I started my PhD. And as David mentioned, I was immensely lucky to have the most fantastic supervisors for my PhD. Uh, John Maynard-Smith, if you don't know who he is, uh, you should do. And Brian Spratt, who also is a, 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 a tremendously uh, influential, uh, uh, eminent person, a tremendous influence on in my career. So um, I, was, I really lucked out with my PhD, and it was, it was, uh, uh, my PhD was focused on, on the Neisseria genus. Um, so Neisseria, I've already mentioned, uh, is, there's two pathogenic species. There's Neisseria meningitis, which lives in the throat, the nasopharynx, 
um, which causes meningitis. There's other commensal non-disease-causing organisms that live there too, flavescens and lactamica. And this is the, the poster I use for this talk, this funny coffee bean-shaped uh, cell is a Neisseria. And there's Neisseria gonorrhea. Notice the extra E on the end. It took me about two years to get used to putting that on. It's not it's spelt differently from the disease, but that's usually in the urinogenital tract. So just before I started my PhD, John and Chris Dowson and Brian Spratt published this landmark publication in Nature showing that uh, recombination, uh, specifically transformation, uh, can play a big role in the emergence of antibiotic <coughs> resistance. So these bars here represent a particular gene, in this case it's called the PBP gene, and essentially the story here is that there's a sensitive Neisseria meningitis living alongside a penicillin-resistant Neisseria flavescence, and the sensitive uh, strain has picked up these little blocks of black in the gene here, which confer resistance through this process of transformation. They called it localized sex. Localized meaning that there was only tiny little bits of DNA in the genome. So my question that I was given in my PhD is how, what, 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 how does recombination happen? Is, it very, is, it, is this a fundamental process that we're observing for bacterial evolution? Or is, this, or is the antibiotic resistance a special case, something that we're only likely to see if there's a tremendous selective advantage for this sort of recombination event to occur? And the answer is very much the former. It turns out to be a fundamental process, um, not just occurring in, in resistance genes, but all over the genome. I, I was given a very boring gene, the ADK, adenylate kinase gene. I'm sorry if there's any biochemists who find adenylate kinase interesting. <laughs> I can still cite almost the whole amino acid sequence of this thing. Um, but it was picked on the, on the, on the premise that it, it, it's, it, it encodes a very uh, fundamental core part of cell metabolism. There's no reason why this sequence should change unlike the, the, the genes uh, um, relevant to antibiotic resistance. But nevertheless, we get exactly the same sort of chimeric or mosaic structure in these genes. Um, there's a paper which showed that actually uh, a big surprise that you can even get recombination between these two pathogenic species, Neisseria meningitis and Neisseria gonorrhea. This is actually my first paper, so a fondness of it. Um, although to this day, it remains um, uh, how, how a bug that that grows, uh, normally colonizes the nasopharynx, could ever conceivably come into contact with a bug that colonizes the urinogenital tract, remains one of life's unsolved mysteries. <laughs> so this is DNA sequence. If you don't know what it looks like, very nice, clean string of binary data. You know when you've got an A, if you can sequence, and you know when you've got a T. Um, it's very... Uh, amenable to analysis. Computers speak this language very nicely. It's very easy to store, to archive, and to do all sorts of analysis with. This is what we used to do the sequencing. My PhD was based on 14 gene sequences, and we did it using these things. This is actually my first sequencing gel, dated 27th of October 1992. Um, I was so pleased with this, I kept it. I, I managed to sequence 319 bases of E. coli. And you put this thing on a light box, and you sit there with a pencil, just like in this picture, and you go, is that a note? You have to read off all these little bands. They go, oh, is that a G? Is that a... And they're all scratched out. Oh, nightmare. So this was 1992. This is what the internet looked like in 1992. <laughs> 
This is actually the first uh, site on the World Wide Web put up by Tim Berners-Lee. It was still there. There, wasn't, there, isn't, there is no uh, existing screenshot of the very first version, unfortunately. But this was a year later in 1992. Uh, it's brilliant. The World Wide Web is uh, W3 is a wide area hypermedia information retrieval initiative aiming to give universal access to a large universe of documents. Hey. They really didn't know what they were doing and what was coming, did they? Uh, so let's fast forward to 1998. This is what sequence data looked like in 1998. Gone were the, these, these horrible radiograms. Gone was filling the lab with radioactive sulfur and cursing when the blooming gel tanks leaked everywhere. Now we had automated sequencing. Um, when it worked, which was sometimes, it looked like the top. Um, and you had these lovely peaks and you, and you had reasonably good base cooling software which could tell you what read off the sequence. When it didn't work, it looked like this, and you were still there trying to go, oh, is that an A or is that a T? Um, so it was much, much better, um, uh, uh, and it was automated. This is what the internet looked like in 1998. Um, Google beta, I'm not sure when they got rid of the exclamation mark. I think it was a bit of a shame, personally, but it looks kind of Fisher-Price and nice. And it's in colour. <laughs> the internet was in colour in 1998. So why am I talking about the internet uh, and sequencing technology? Well, it's because uh, this next paper, 1998, this was the year that this paper was published, which became a real proper landmark publication, and it was really uh, to be caught right on the crest of this wave was a real lucky break for me. And it was a big international effort. Uh, Brian Spratt, um, as a, uh, supervisor, Mark Ackman in Berlin, uh, Dominic Kogon in Oslo, Ian Fevers and Martin Maiden, who were then at the uh, NIBS in Potter's Bar. So this was a method by which uh, the idea was to take this new sequencing technology, combine it with this new shiny thing called the internet, and then uh, uh, set up a system by which Anyone in the world could sequence a standard set of genes from their particular bug, MRSA or NICERIA or whatever they're interested in, and then compare that DNA sequence with a database held on the internet so you could see immediately whether that particular strain had been found before in a hospital in Australia or in India or whatever. It seems kind of obvious now, but at the time, this was really kind of revolutionary. It opened up a whole new avenue, a whole new opportunities for proper global surveillance of disease. Um, so, uh, as I said, it's the first time the internet had been used, and it was based on seven genes. One of the genes used uh, was my very boring ADK, I'm proud to say. Uh, the first paper was uh, 100 uh, isolates of Neisseria meningitis to sequence at these seven genes. Um, this is still very much used today. The current uh, database for Neisseria contains about 39,000 isolates. It works, uh, the data is stored in a very simple way, so each strain is, is, is defined on the basis of sequences at these seven, uh, a, a standard set of seven genes. Each different sequence at each gene is given a number, each combination of numbers is given another number, which is called the ST, which actually stands for sequence type, but might as well stand for strain. Okay, so it's a very simple way of, of storing the data. And I have to big up, uh, two guys who really were instrumental, David, who's here, and uh, who's at that time, well, still is, working at Imperial College in London, uh, Keith Jolly working in Oxford, and these were the guys who really set up the, the, uh, the websites to house these data and set up uh, and wrote um, 
clever bits of uh, analysis software for searching the databases and really making this thing happen. MLST uh, schemes have now been published for well over 100 species and there's been about 3,000 papers published using this method. It's been uh, a really major turning point in global epidemiology. So there was one problem which when you start getting data sets of this sort of size, it's how to visualize, how to summarize the whole data set. Okay? When the paper was in the original paper, uh, the way by which uh, the, the data were visualized was this sort of UPGMA dendrogram, it's called. So it's a way of just clustering the different strains. So the, the things which are closest on this figure uh, have, the, have the most genes in common. This is based on, I don't know, uh, 100, 150 isotopes. When, when the data set started getting properly big, you can imagine that very quickly these sort of visualizations got um, really very cumbersome. And in fact, I remember Brian actually, this no word of a lie, he used to keep a magnifying glass in his, uh, the drawer of his desk so that he could actually look at these sort of uh, uh, figures and try and figure out uh, what's sitting next to what. So uh, this is my next uh, uh, bigging up. So uh, um, uh, my next hero that I have to have a mention, uh, Mr. Coates, my maths teachers. Any teachers here? I know there are teachers here. You should uh, remember what an influence you have um, uh, uh, on, uh, throughout someone's life. I've, uh, this is something which he always used to say. I'm not a mathematician by any means, um, but I do remember him saying this, whenever you have any data, you've got to plot it, you've got to get your hands dirty, you've got to graph it in different ways, make it work for you. And this is what I try and tell my first year students. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find a picture of Mr. Coates on the internet, um, so this was a closer <laughs> thing. <laughs> Thanks, oh, yeah, it's a bit of a niche one, that one. <laughs> So uh, this was uh, uh, led to um, uh, this burst algorithm with which, which um, David mentioned. Um, well, so I, I sort of designed the basic rules, but again, it was David uh, and Brian's support that really made it happen. And essentially, you take a representation like this, and you take exactly the same data, and this algorithm turns it into something that looks like this, which is a lot more easy on the eye, I hope you agree. And what's more is you can actually pick out what's likely a, an evolutionary hypothesis. So these, these circles in the middle are particular uh, types, STs, strains, um, which have undergone these sort of radial expansions to create these, these sort of subfinders. It gives you an immediate hypothesis which you can get a handle on. And again, this was turned out to be uh, a fairly good big hit. And it's based on very, very simple rules. Um, and you can look at very big uh, data sets all at once and, uh, and be able to define the different groups within the population. Uh, there's 5,000-odd Neisseria meningitis isolates in this representation of a population. Uh, this this uh, analysis underwent quite rigorous testing um, in uh, 2007, um, and I'm pleased to say that it turns out to have worked okay. Um, <laughs> it sort of passed the test, at least it passed the test well enough that the lead author of this study agreed to marry me this year, so <laughs> it all, couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> so fast forward now to 2010, this is what sequence data looks like currently and what it starts looking like in 2010. This is uh, 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 
the MySeq, the Illumina MySeq machine, the, one of the, the industry standards of this, what's called next generation sequencing platform, each one of the little colored dots here is a, 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 a DNA molecule being sequenced and the colors represent the different bases of that DNA. So it's massively parallel. So you sequence loads and loads of little bits of the genome all in one go and then stick everything together at the end really did change things uh, uh, quite massively. This is a graph showing um, the number of genomes sequenced um, over time. And you can see around this time, 2010 to 2011, there was this huge increase in the amount of uh, genomic data. So it actually made MLST, I have to say, fairly obsolete <laughs> very quickly, although it's still being used. Um, it currently costs about 50, 50 pounds to sequence uh, the whole thing. So before we were talking about seven genes of MLST, now we're talking about the whole, more or less all the genes, about 2,000 genes. Okay, so you can see immediately you've got for every single strain, you've got an, a massive more information. So again, I found myself in the very, very lucky position to be right at the uh, forefront of, of this new wave of molecular data, this new wave of technology, working with some really clever people at the uh, Wellcome Trust uh, Sanger Institute, Simon Harris and Steve Bentley, I have to big up in particular, and of course, Julian Parkhill and, uh, and Sharon Peacock and Matt Holden, in fact, all of them. Um, so they really were the first genuinely world leaders, actually. I mean, we've all, we, we tend to, we do, I don't, we, we're good at sequencing in this country, I have to say, we really genuinely are, and a lot of it's down to the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. So they were the first to really see the use of these new sequencing machines to do uh, molecular epidemiology. And this led to this science paper that David mentioned in 2010. And what we looked at is again an MRSA strain, thing called ST239. So these were all, all the isolates we looked at were absolutely identical by MLST. So they were defined as being ST239. So they're the same sequence at each of these seven genes. So essentially it is one thing, one strain. So this particular strain uh, globally was probably the most important MRSA strain. It caused about 90% of hospital acquired MRSA uh, throughout much of mainland Asia and South America. 2008, it caused a very serious outbreak in, uh, in, a, in an ICU in London. So we took uh, 62 isolates we sequenced, 40 from around the world, and 20 from a single hospital taken from uh, rural Thailand. And this is the only tree <laughs> in this talk, uh, but it's a way of representing, uh, representing the variation within what we've, up to this point, had called a single strain, remember. So it's color-coded, so uh, according to the origin, the geographic origin of the isolates, so the blues are the Asian ones, the greens are South Americans, uh, and the reds are uh, European, blacks are North American. So hopefully without going into detail about what these, this kind of visualization, this tree means, you can see that all the blue ones are together, all the green ones together. The red ones are a little bit more uh, uh, varied. But essentially what this is showing is that this strain has diversified within each of these parts of the world. So you could actually uh, sequence uh, two of this SC239 from South America and they're more likely to be similar to each other. Um, there are some interesting discrepancies. There's a whole bunch of uh, uh, isolates that came from, well, actually were in Portugal, but clustered with uh, the South American ones. Um, and this uh, led us to propose that there had been a transmission event from South America, probably Brazil, to Portugal, and this sparked off a whole 
uh, epidemic wave of infection in Portuguese hospitals um, in the late 1990s. The other interesting discrepancy is this red one here sitting in this, this big sea of blue. This was actually the one from the ICU outbreak in London sitting in with uh, all the Asian isolates. Um, and it turns out that the explanation for that is that this outbreak was probably sparked off by a transmission event from Southeast Asia, uh, probably Thailand, into, by a staff or patient or whatever we can't talk about, we suspect, but we can't <laughs> talk about individuals, um, <coughs> to spark off this, this <coughs> actually very serious <coughs> outbreak in London. Excuse me. <coughs> How am I doing? Okay, not too bad, right. So... <coughs> The other half of this study, as you remember, is here's, we have uh, the Asian ones. These are all, in fact, from a single hospital in Thailand. This is a Google image shot of this hospital in rural Thailand, outlined here. Um, <clears throat> the uh, variation of these isolates fall into two groups, the blue groups and the red group. And if we look at where those isolates were, came from, from the hospitals, which wards... We see that one ward specifically had one type variation uh, uh, and there was a bit of a mixture uh, in, in the adjoining ward. Uh, this, is a, this is again is a, as an in intensive care unit um, and a different, different variant in the rest of the hospital. So this kind of structuring works at both at the, uh, a global level and at the most local level imaginable. It works on the basis of a single hospital and we can actually uh, see different variants circulating in different wards. So there's a couple of Explanations: Either this means that a new variant has come in from outside into this ward or that this variant has evolved within the hospital. And in fact, the, we believe the former to be the case, that this was actually a patient coming in from elsewhere bringing a different variant of sub-variant, sub-sub-variant of this ST239. So that's enough about Thailand. What about the, uh, the UK? Um, so anyone uh, with a... Uh, a slightly long memory, not that long, but many of you here will remember the big scandal that we've had of MRSA in this country um, uh, during the first half of the noughties, essentially. Um, there was a huge increase in the amount of uh, hospital-acquired MRSA um, uh, in the UK, um, as this graph shows. So a follow-up study to that initial science paper um, was to look at what's caused this big uh, increase in the rate of hospital-acquired MRSA in the UK. Now, it turns out that almost all of this increase, like SC239, was down to a single strain. In this case, it's something called ST22, or also known as EMRSA15. But a single uh, thing defined by MLST was what was responsible for this huge increase in cases in our hospitals. So where did this strain emerge from? What happened? What was the trigger uh, for this huge increase in MRSA in UK hospitals? Well, uh, again, working with, with uh, Matt Holden, uh, we sequenced uh, 200 or so genomes. So you see the numbers are slowly getting bigger all the time. Uh, ST22 genomes from hospitals in the UK and other countries throughout Europe, and using some very clever <coughs> statistical analysis, um, what is possible to do is actually to pinpoint both the time and the place when this uh, uh, massive expansion 
of this particular strain uh, uh, arose. And, it, uh, and, and the analysis pointed very strongly to the, the Midlands um, in the mid-1980s. Um, actually, specifically, it was a field outside Derby in 1995, but I don't think we can be that accurate about it. Um, so what happened in the, uh, in the West Midlands in the mid-80s? Um, what can we tell from the DNA sequence whether there's any change in the bacteria which led to this great expansion throughout the UK? Well, it turns out that one of the, uh, uh, the key changes from the DNA sequence was the acquisition of resistance to a second antibiotic. These things were already MRSA, so they're already resistant to methicillin, but they became resistant to another class of antibiotics, the so-called fluoroquinolones. Uh, fluoroquinolones are used prophylactically, used preventatively um, before surgical procedures in order to prevent infections. They're very broad spectrum. They kill a lot of bugs. Um, they're also very stable. They're secreted on the skin. So they have a sort of carpet bombing effect on lots of different bacteria. So if you're resistant to the fluoroquinolones, you've got a massive selective advantage. And you're already resistant to the beta-lactams, methicillin. Um, so this was, oh, that's interesting. These, these bugs are also resistant to fluoroquinolones. I wonder if that's had anything to do with it. But still, what happened in Derby in 1985? And it turns out that there was a, uh, uh, the first preclinical trials of fluoroquinolones occurred in 1985 in uh, Birmingham, I believe, at least in the Midlands. So these two lines of evidence, the, 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 the sequencing data, the A's, T's, G's and C's, and the more traditional epidemiological evidence just collided perfectly to uh, uh, flag up this single event, the use of this new type of antibiotic um, and the acquisition of resistance to this new antibiotic, which triggered off um, the vast majority of the cases of hospital-acquired MRSA um, during the, uh, 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 the late 90s and, and uh, first half of the 2000s. You may remember the general election of 2005. This is what the internet looked like in 2005. You may remember him, something of the night about him, uh, Michael Howard. Um, this just gives a flavour of the climate of the time. You may remember what a big deal hospital hygiene was. Um, it was one of the Conservative uh, Party's six election pledges to get on top of hospital hygiene to sort out MRSA. This just gives a flavour of the, of the sort of climate. There's this, this huge scandal that Michael Howard went to visit patients in the hospital. Uh, he washed before entering the ward but failed to repeat the process between shaking hands with two patients and he was mortified after bre breaching hospital hygiene rules. So this was one of the huge deal uh, MRSA in particular was in the hospitals at the time. This is uh, to, to repeat, the, continue the graph uh, that I showed you a moment ago. This is what happened after 2005, 2006. The government made all these, the Labour government that actually won, um, if you remember, um, made all these fantastic targets about treating MRSA, about the, the, how... Uh, the infection rates will be at a certain level in a certain amount of time. And we in the business are like, oh, yeah, deep cleans, hand washing, da 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 The bugs read the manifestos because they hit the targets bang on, <laughs> to, to everybody's surprise, basically. So this is what happened. The, the, the MRSA rates halved um, very, very quickly, and they're still uh, uh, very, very low. Um, and how did it happen? Well, 
Part of it was uh, individual hospitals started, there's much more judicious use of these fluoroquinolone antibiotics now than there was before. But I can't say that that, that paper was all retrospective. That was after all this happened. Um, so what actually uh, uh, was responsible was it's not rocket science. It was the cleaning of the wards. It was the washing of hands. It was the barrier nursing, aprons, and all the rest of it. So these things can really do have an effect. So that's the good news. Um, this is a very similar graph for cases of C. diff about the same time, a really striking peak and then a striking uh, decrease at about the same time. Unfortunately, there's no room for complacency in this and, and trying to manage antibiotic resistance as a whole is very much a game of whack-a-mole. You might get rid of one bug or be able to get down to a manageable level, but then the next thing comes along. And as I've already mentioned, um, the thing that's causing a lot of concern at the moment is this other uh, gram-negative bug, very un unrelated to, to Staph aureus or C. diff called Klebsiella pneumoniae, more related to E. coli, um, which are causing all sorts of issues in, uh, 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 in lots of places here, but also in southern Europe. Greece, frankly, is in a bit of a bad way, um, but what's happening in Italy and Portugal isn't, uh, isn't very good either. So it's probably only a matter of time before the, uh, we start to hear much more about Klebsiella pneumoniae. And what's different about this bug is that it actually has an environmental component. So MRSA tends to be restricted to hospitals, largely, at least in this country. These gram-negatives, Klebsiella and E. coli, they can get out in, in healthy people's guts in soil and water, so they, it's much more difficult to pick apart the dynamics of how they're transmitting. So just to finally wrap up, current work we're now... As I say, the numbers of genomes are just getting ridiculous. We're now uh, uh, looking retrospectively at about uh, uh, 4,000 MRSA isolates sequenced um, uh, um, uh, for all from the UK and Ireland over a 10-year period. This is a big um, multi-million pound uh, project with all these people. Um, I'm also involved in looking at aquaculture. It's one of my very exciting projects. It's quite different, but in fact, we're using um, quite similar methods, genomic methods, to understand the transmission of uh, bacteria between fish and between fish farms. Um, aquaculture, as you may be aware, is, is, is a really rapidly expanding set to become a very important component of our global uh, food security. And we're using much the same techniques to try and manage um, infections of, of, of salmon and trout specifically. So finally, I want to quote Paul Simon. Um, the future is the present, the present's in the past. It comes from a really good album, One Trick Pony, recommend it. Uh, this is my, well, until recently, this was my group. Vicky's just uh, uh, left last week, well, she's here, but she's no longer my postdoc. This is Harry, my PhD student, up a mountain. Um, Sean, in the bar, postdoc. <laughs> and what this, is, what this is what sequence data is about to look like. It's sort of uh, uh, just... Uh, uh, new technology just coming online now. These are what technically sort of funny extra sketch things. It's technically known as squiggles. Um, and this is a whole new uh, sequencing technology. Um, and this is where it came from. This is uh, the new generation of sequencing machine produced by a company uh, uh, just in, uh, outside Oxford, Oxford Nanopore. Um, this is, you plug this into your laptop um, you squirt a little bit of DNA. Actually, you have to. There's a bit more to it than that. But uh, essentially, this will sequence a genome. With, with Vicky's, managed to sequence uh, a Staph aureus genome in about two hours using this bit of kit. And you may have seen just 
David's down a bit much. <laughs> you may have seen, you may have seen in, the, in, the, in the, a lot of press about this particular study um, just recently where a really clever guy, um, Nick Lohman at the University of Birmingham, um, has really pioneered the use of this technology in anger. And what he did, he sent off his PhD student, Joss Quitt, to uh, Guinea while the Ebola outbreak was on. Um, they took everything, they took everything they needed in the suitcase. So all the equipment for sequencing, the, the laptop, the centrifuges, this little sequencer, and they set up this lab in a hospital in Guinea. And what they could do is actually from a patient coming into the hospital, they could sequence the entire genome within 24 hours, and they could say, oh, this patient caught Ebola from his village, or, oh no, this person caught an Ebola that looks like a village 10 miles away. It's that sort of scale of resolution. So they could really do what's real-time epidemiology. Almost everything that I've talked about so far is all retrospective. It's all picking it all apart a long time after it's happened, trying to figure out how it's happened. Now we're talking about real-time epidemiology, actually generating these, these data as it's happening. And this is a real promise for the future. So just to wrap up, I would say that... Um, of course, there are things we can do to manage bacteria. There, there, there are bacterial diseases. There are things we can do to manage antibiotic resistance. We have technology. We can get the, We know what the basics are in terms of sanitation, in terms of hospital hygiene, and all the rest of it. We have this fantastic uh, sequencing uh, uh, technology, which, which combined with more traditional approaches can really help us get on top of these diseases. I would say the biggest challenge is really uh, as much, not so much scientific as, as political, that in order to, to actually maximise, optimise the use of this technology for global surveillance, we need to be much more joined up in our thinking. We need to think globally. Infectious disease, they don't care about national borders. Um, they just care about getting to the next host. So until we build proper global infrastructure whereby we can have free sharing of data, free sharing of resources, we're not going to be able to optimise the technology. And I feel somewhat uh, um, worried about how we tend to be, seem to be going, if anything, towards in the wrong direction, towards a more isolationist sort of philosophy. The European project seems to be ever increasingly fragile. We have more and more turbulence in the Middle East. We have talk of a new Cold War and all the rest of it. And I think if we're really talking about getting on top of, of uh, managing bacterial infections and infectious diseases in general, this is, this is what we have to get on top of as much as the technology and the science. So just to some people, I've kind of done acknowledgements as I've gone along, but there's a lot of people that I haven't mentioned. I love working in Bath. It's a fantastic group of people. I've, if you're not on this slide and you're here, I really apologise. As you can see, I just ran out of space. But it's a really, really nice place to work. A lot of friendly people, a lot of, very, uh, a lot of great expertise as well. I'd like to thank my mum and dad. Um, thanks to my mum, who's here. Um, and I haven't forgotten that it was my mum who actually found... The, uh, the advert in the 1991 edition of Nature, which, uh, which I applied and got my PhD originally. So she, and uh, Dad, of course, get well soon, Pop. And um, Richard, Mary Ann, John and Tracy, and Finley, Lily and Sarah, it's all lovely to see you here. But the final word goes to these two, um, who have put up with a lot, especially in the last few days when I'm preparing this. Um, so love you both. Thanks very much indeed. And that's me done. Thank you.